are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Welcome to a new episode of Stories from Palestine podcast. It's been really very cold in Palestine. I think this is the longest and coldest winter I have experienced since I live here. We are desperately waiting for warmer spring weather. And last weekend, I did my first tour in two years since the COVID pandemic started. A Dutch family was visiting their daughter who's volunteering in Jerusalem. And I took them on a tour in Bethlehem, but it was extremely cold and wet. It was raining most of the day. So we had to skip most of the outdoor walking and sightseeing. And we did a lot of things indoors. We went to the Waldorf Hotel that I spoke about in the last week's episode. And then we went to Aida Refugee Camp. And that's where I recorded this week's podcast episode. We also went to eat falafel at Aftim. And then we visited the Church of Nativity. And then it was so cold that we decided not to go for a walk in the town. But we went to our singer cafe in Beit Sahur and we had sahlap and hot chocolate. So it was great to have visitors again. And we really hope that people will keep coming to Palestine. And if you are interested in the October program that we are organizing, Salim and I, then do check out the link in the show notes. You can get more information if you click on that link. And then if you want more detailed information about how we work and how to sign up for the program, then send us an email and we will be in touch with you. So I decided to record the talk that Anas gave. He's the director of the AIDA Youth Center. And this week I want to share that with you. But before we listen to Anas, as an introduction, I would like to say a few things about AIDA Refugee Camp. It is one of the three refugee camps in Bethlehem. There's also the Heisha camp and Aza camp. It is one of the 68 Palestinian refugee camps that exists in total. So that includes in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. In the West Bank, there are 19 refugee camps. And this camp is especially known to be the most tear gassed place in the world. It is very close to an Israeli military base and there are regular raids from that base into the camp and that includes arresting Palestinians including also children. And on several occasions children and teenagers were shot by snipers. When you enter the camp you can see a big poster with a photo of a 13-year-old boy. His name was Abdurrahman. 
He was standing right there at that point on the 5th of October 2014 with a bunch of kids, his friends, when he was shot right in the heart by an Israeli sniper and he died. And right next to that poster, we see the entrance gate to the camp with a huge key on its top. And the key symbolizes the key of return, the right of return that Palestinians have according to international law. United Nations Resolution 194 says that all Palestinians have the right to return to their homes, but they have never been allowed to do so. And many of the Palestinian families who fled in 1948 from their homes locked the door thinking that they will return to their homes when the attacks were over and the situation would calm down. And until now, many families still have that key in family possession. And the name of the camp, Ida Camp, is the name of a woman from Bethlehem who had a coffee shop in that area. And when the refugees started to come since 1948, she was there taking care of people and people used to drink coffee with her, warm up, trying to get some news, trying to get some help. And so out of respect for her, they named the camp after her, Ida Camp. So... As you know, in 1948, the Zionist militias, before creating Israel and before creating uh, the Israeli army, because the Israeli army created by all the Zionist militias, they were like 70,000 militants. They are the ones who established the, the Israeli army, which is today. So the 70,000 Zionist militants, they are the ones who started to attack the villages, towns, cities in 1948 between December of 1947 until October of 1949. So it, it was like process of 20 months attacking the cities, towns, everywhere where the Palestinians were living in the area which was planned that they wanted to occupy. So what happened? It wasn't something unplanned. It was a plan called Plan D. That time, the Zionist leaders, and specifically Ben-Gurion, who he was the, the leader of this council, they took the decision to apply Plan D to occupy 78% of the total lands of Palestine with minority of Palestinians, with less Palestinians that they can live in this new state. So the plan started after the partition plan, after one week of the partition plan. You know the partition plan. Britain, they tried to pass through United Nations a partition plan for Palestine because Palestine at that time was under the British mandate. So they wanted to get rid of this cause, of what's happening in Palestine because they are the ones who supported the Jewish immigration from Europe, from Russia, from U.S. to Palestine. They were like facilitating all the process to bring the immigrants from all the world to Palestine after Balfour Declaration. You know Balfour Declaration and what happened. So in that time, the British mandate decided that, oh, 
we don't want to deal with this matter anymore. We want to put it in UN, and UN it was just established two years ago, and they tried to find a resolution for what's happening in Palestine. After the British mandate brought more than 400,000 immigrants from all over the world to Palestine, and the number of Palestinians in that time who were living in Palestine, they were like 1,300,000. So Palestine was populated, Palestine was a flourished country. The, the people here, they were having cinemas, theaters, banks, companies, seaports, not as the Zionists in that time, they tried to portray that Palestine was empty, desert, and they wanted to make it bloom, or they wanted to make it Switzerland in the Middle East. This is what was their slogans at that time, like we wanted to do a country like Switzerland, but in the Middle East. So that's why until today they are trying to make Palestine or the Palestinian territories, or we called it also historical Palestine, to make it look more like Europe. That's why you look at the buildings, you will find tiles over the roofs. That's why you see a lot of trees that it's not part of the environment here. It's, or not, it's not part of the trees which the Palestinians used to plant, like olive trees. They brought all the trees. They planted more than three million trees in Palestine to change the landscape of Palestine. It's a process. It's something started from the 20s, 30s, and continue until today. So what happened? It's a process. It's something planned. There is countries supported that. They wanted to get rid of the Jewish problem in Europe, in Russia, in all the countries, to find a solution for them, but on the account of Palestinian people, the indigenous people of Palestine. So they supported that. And they created Israel, but on our account. So my land is stolen. It was stolen in 1948. And they are still keeping stealing new lands. So every day they are stealing new land. What's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, if you heard about it? What's happening in Negev today? What's happening in many villages and towns in Area C? It's something like continuous, ongoing ethnic cleansing, ongoing stealing land ongoing uprooting Palestinians, ongoing replacing the indigenous people with the new immigrants. So now they brought more than 1,700 Ukrainian to, to Palestine. But at the same time, the Palestinians who fled in 1948, they can't come back to their villages and towns or homes. So it's a process. That's very important to understand that what's happening is something planned and processed. It's something ongoing. They haven't stopped since 20s until today. Because what's happened in 20s and 30s, they were stealing lands, but in different ways. They were using different tools to uproot the Palestinians and replace them with the new immigrants. So the Palestinians, in the beginning, they were very hospitable with the Jewish immigrants because they were thinking that they are coming as refugees, they have difficult situation everywhere, they tried to live with them, and you can come and live here between us. It's like open land for all the people. So they didn't have the idea that these people, they are coming to replace them. So there is a lot of oral history from our grandparents, how they, they were treating the, the new immigrants and how they were 
cooperative with them. They help them how like to reclaim the lands, which crops that grow here, which not like in the industry, in the exporting, importing, because Palestine, they were exporting many things to the world. So we have a famous proverb or saying that they took it furnished. They took Palestine furnished. It was like a ready state, so just they kick the people from this state and they took it ready. So they have stolen our lands, our houses, our furniture, our books. There is a famous documentary in Vimo, you can find it in Vimo. It's called The Biggest Book Robbery. It's talking about more than 100,000 books. They were stolen from the Palestinian houses and they still until now, keep it in the Hebrew University in Tel Aviv. And until today, they didn't give it back to the owners of these books. So musical instruments, everything, it was stolen. Everything like the crops, the lands, the seaports, the buildings, everything. So my grandfather, he owned in Beit Natif more than 50 acres. They took it and now they build an Israeli satellite station on our land. In the same time, I am the, the owner of that land. I'm living in a refugee camp. Why I'm living in a refugee camp? Because I'm Palestinian. You know what's the difference? So I'm living here in the refugee camp, far away from the Israeli settler who's living in Gilo settlement. It's just like 500 meters far away from either refugee camp. I'm always like thinking if, if I was born there, it's a different life. So because I came from Palestinian fathers, so I have to live in a refugee camp. But if I came from an Israeli fathers, I have like totally privileged life and different status and situation. So this is how the situation here. So the refugees who's living in Ida camp, they came from 27 different villages and towns. All of these villages and towns located between Hebron and Jerusalem. Most of them were occupied in October of 1948. So when you are attacked, where do you go? You go to the safest place and close to your town or house because you think that when they finish the attack, you will return back. So when they finish the attack, many refugees tried to return back to their houses. But what happened? They passed a law called the prevention of infiltration law. Considering any Palestinian trying to return back to his village or town as infiltrator. So what they do with them? They do three things. They kill them or exile them, put them on the borders with Jordan, Syria, Lebanon and tell them to go or arrest them. While they arrest them, they put them in war camps. What the prisoners do? They take them to the occupied villages and towns, clear the houses from all the belongings, furnitures, and they force them to demolish the houses, which they don't want, you know? Like there's houses, all the houses, it's not nice houses. Okay, we don't want these houses, but of course, whereas villas or whereas like good houses, they keep it until today. And that's what you see if you go to Jerusalem, to Atalbiya or the Germany street, you will find a lot of houses belong to Palestinians, but in the same time, it's populated by Israeli citizens. And you can find on the entrance of the house, you can find verses from Al-Quran or something written in Arabic. So 
because they are nice houses they keep it but the old houses for poor people so they don't want them to exist they want to demolish them to transform it to a park or something like that so as i said about either refugee camp the refugees came from 27 different villages and towns and the the forest town it's like less than 40 minutes by a car from the original town. So Ida camp is very close to these villages and towns. Most of these villages and towns, the majority, more than 80% of the lands of Ida refugee people, it's still empty. Nobody living there. 80% of these lands is still empty. They transform it to parks, like the British park, which just established before maybe two years because it, it's supported by Britain to establish a park in these lands. So part of my, my village, Beit Natif, there is four kibbutz, or they called it four agricultural settlements. And part of our land also, it's now transformed to a new city called Beit Shemesh. Most of the refugees of Aida camp, part of their villages and towns now belong to an Israeli city called Beit Shemesh. So here the refugees, they tried, many of them, like my uncle tried to just to go back to his village to bring his cows because, you know, there were nobody to feed them. So he just got to his village he wanted just to take his cows, like to, to feed himself and the family. They killed him. And many, many people from Aida camp, like from Al-Malha. Al-Malha, it's very close to Aida. It's like 20 minutes by a car. They tried three people. They tried to go and to bring some of their belongings. Nobody heard about them anymore. So there's a lot of stories. Maybe it's not documented, but you can hear these stories from, from the people here. It's like oral history. We had a project before two years to document the oral history, and it's very important. To document it, it's very important for also the other generations, for the people to know what happened and what's happening. And newly, there is a lot of information from the Israeli archive. It starts to expose by different historians, like Ilan Pape, like Avi Shlaim. They are trying to write, they have access to that archive. And they found like terrorizing information that they didn't believe that that happened. Like woman was raped, like pregnant woman was killed by knives to kill both of them, not just the woman. It's something related to, to like sick mentality that they want to just to, to terrorize the people. And what's going on until today is terrorizing the people. When a child he throws stone on a wall on an Israeli military car, they come in the midnight and storm the house, make the house upside down, arrest the kid, and stay in prison for one year or two years or six months. It's like to keep this refugees terrorized from thinking about their lands, about their stolen lands, about returning back to their lands. So it's ongoing process to keep the situation as it is. According to the last research made by Badil, they found that the Palestinians 
they are living on less than 10% of the total lands of Palestine. And they are 7 million. The Israelis, they are 6 and half million. They are living on 90% of the total lands. Or not, they are living, they are, they have the access and the ability to use 90% of the total lands of Palestine. So, the Palestinians who are the majority, they are living in 10%. At the same time, the Israelis, they are less than the Palestinian number. They are using the 90%, the other 90% of the total lands of Palestine. They are trying to separate Israel, West Bank, Gaza. But in real, do you think that there's separation? A part of the separation wall? Who's controlling everywhere? The one who's controlling all the lands, all the historical lands of Palestine, West Bank, Gaza, Nazareth, Jerusalem, they are the Israelis. If anyone from Gaza, he wanted to export or import something, he could do it without the Israeli permission? For sure, no. If he wanted to leave Gaza or to come back to Gaza, he could enter without Israeli permission? Of course, no. And like Gaza, Gaza is the biggest refugee camp in the world. There is two million people living in Gaza. 80% of them, they are refugees. And the size of Bethlehem, we consider Bethlehem is a small city in Palestine. The size of Bethlehem, it's twice of the size of Gaza. It's the most crowded area in the world, with 80% of them, they are refugees. And when they do the return march, that they wanted to return back to their villages and towns, they kill them. So, any idea that the Palestinian try to return back to his village and town or house, it's extremely attacked by the Israeli. What's happening today here in Aida refugee camp? Aida refugee camp is the most tear-gassed community in the world. It's research made by Berkeley Institute for Human Rights in, in California. It just released four years ago. And all the reports from Amnesty, from Human Watch Association, all of it is talking about what's happening here in Palestine is crimes against humanity. It's like different kind of, you can't describe sometimes. Because here in Palestine, it's like ethnic cleansing. It's apartheid, but we don't have just one sample of apartheid. There is four samples of apartheid. The Palestinians who's living in West Bank, they are living under apartheid systems totally different of the Palestinians who, who's living in Jerusalem. They have another kind of apartheid. The Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship, they have like a different kind of apartheid. The Palestinians who's living in Gaza, they are under a different kind of, of apartheid. There is laws, military laws, that differentiate between the four kinds of apartheid that the Palestinians, they are living under. Just yesterday, they passed a law that barring the Palestinian spouses, if you are a Palestinian having Israeli citizenship, wanted to marry a Palestinian living in West Bank, you can't do a family reunion. You can't, as Palestinian from West Bank, you can't live in Nazareth, which now considered an Israeli city, or in Jerusalem. Most of the people here, they don't have access to go to Jerusalem or to Nazareth. They don't have permission because also it's one of, of the apartheid system, the permission system, which preventing the Palestinian from going there, except if they want to.
if they want you as a cheap labor, if they want you, if you are like a good businessman and you are making business with Israeli business people. If a woman wants to marry someone from West Bank, if she's living in Nazareth and wanted to marry a Palestinian man in West Bank, he can't go there to Nazareth. If she wanted to marry him, she should come to Bethlehem and like stay in Bethlehem. And if they wanted to register their kids, they can't. And I have a friend, his mother from Jerusalem and his father from either refugee camp. He stayed for 18 years without ID. I have a friend until today, she's 25 years old and she didn't have ID. She tried to travel to France with a theater group. She couldn't because she doesn't have papers. She is not recognized on the systems. So she is living for 25 years without anything to document her that she is alive or she is part of, of this country. So any kind of family reunion, they try to ban it. It's all complicated. If an Israeli citizen who have a Jewish background want to marry an Israeli settler who's living in West Bank, they do it normally. Anyone can prevent them? Okay, the settler is living on the lands of West Bank according to the international law. He's living in Bitar or he's living in Har Huma, Abu Ghnim. So if he wanted to marry here, he could do it in seconds. And the settler is living in West Bank. Why you are discriminated? Just because you are Palestinian. Because you came from Palestinian parents. Because you are the one whose your land were stolen. They still have this mentality. You know, always the criminal scared from the one who has the right. So he tried to use all the means to prevent the one who has the right to have any kind of strength because he knows that when he has the power, he will ask, he will demand his rights. So what's happening? They try to subjugate the Palestinians always by weapons, by separation wall, by apartheid system, by all the means to keep you like weak and weak and weak. And at the same time, most of the people who have the right, they are always blaming themselves that we are weak. There is a lot of psychological analyzation about the mentality of the subjugated people that they are blaming themselves and this is what happening also in Palestine many people they are blaming themselves because they are weak not blaming the the criminal the one who have the power and he used the power in a wrong way by in different means so as I said the refugees of Aida camp they are until today under the mandate of UNRWA UNRWA, they are providing the main services for the refugees in Aida. According to the international law, it's five services. Shelter, social services, education, health, and sanitation. Shelter, it's not provided to the refugees anymore after 1956. In 1950, they provided the refugees with tents. After six years, because the tents always damaged and they have to replace it every time, so they decided the owner what to build one room for each family. If they are six person and less, I took this picture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. These pictures, it's like between 1950 until 1956, tents. 
The refugees, they were living in tents, and they were very blessed because they were living in tents, because for the first two years, they were living in caves under trees. My grandfather told my father that for two years, they didn't find any place to hide under, especially in the winter. I have two uncles, they died. There was a snowstorm in 1949. They died while they are under trees trying to survive. So when the owner came and started to provide them with tents, it's like kind of a blessing to have these tents. So after six years, the owner decided to build one room for every family. If you are six persons and less, you have one room. If you are more than six persons in each family, you will have two rooms. But these rooms without kitchen, without toilet or without bathroom. According to the Palestinian culture, which respect a lot the privacy, so when you don't have a toilet or a bathroom and you don't have a kitchen, it's something to challenge yourself to do anything to have a better situation. So after the UNRWA built that one room, they stopped from providing the refugees with anything related to shelter. So this is the first minimizing of UNRWA services. Then the refugees start to find any way to have an income, to work everywhere, to have an income, to have a better life. They work very hard anywhere to build these houses, which now exist. These houses built from the income of refugees, not from the UNRWA or any international organization. So this is the first minimizing of services of UNRWA. And then they start to minimize, minimize, until now we arrive the minimum. What we have, they are providing us with education, health, social services, and sanitation. It's around 5,500 people living in either refugee camp in a space less than seven acres. So the intercontinental palace here, the, the hotel, it's on four acres, the hotel. All the refugee camp, it's seven acres. 5,500 people living in, on these seven acres, they receive the minimum from UNRWA, and they have a separation wall around them and settlements. You know, if you go around Bethlehem, you will find that Bethlehem, all Bethlehem, it's surrounded by separation wall, by Israeli roads or settlements. It's like cantons. All the Palestinian cities, it's like cantons. And it's totally separated, each city from the other. So if you wanted to go to Hebron, you have to pass by checkpoint, settlements, Israeli roads. If they want to prevent any Palestinian from Bethlehem to go to Hebron, it's very easy. Just they close the checkpoint from Bethlehem to Hebron side and from Bethlehem to Ramallah side. Nobody can leave Bethlehem. This segregation system and this restricted access of everything that make the life of refugees harder and harder. So in the second intifada, when they start the attack in 2002, they occupied all Bethlehem and all the Palestinian cities. The percent of unemployment rate, it was more than 80%. You know, like 80% of the people who are living in Palestine, they were unemployed. What about the people who are 
refugees and living in a refugee camp. They don't have lands, they are not shepherds, they don't have goats or animals. How can they survive? There is a lot of questions that really how the refugees who are living in the refugee camps, they are surviving. Maybe like some schoolers, they call it adaption. There is a UN school there, right? Is it still working or not? The, yeah. Because it doesn't look like a really nice school. Like it's a, there's a lot of iron gates and stuff. It's not a really nice environment for a young child to go to school. So it's... When you came the last time, Yeah. You came when, when five years ago. Five years ago. No, they demolished and built a new one now. But the problem that they built a fancy building. Mm -hmm. But what about the quality of education? Yeah. It's very bad quality. Mm -hmm. More than 50 children in each classroom. Mm -hmm. Small classrooms with 50 students. If you want to divide the number of minutes of each class on the number of children, each child has less than one minute. And how many staff of UNRWA that they are working in AIDA? There are 40. Two-thirds of them, they are working in education. So what kind of services that the refugees are provided? What is the responsibility of the UN at this moment for the refugees? As I said, when they established the UNRWA... There are five uh, pillars. Five pillars. Shelters, they stopped it since 1956, after they built one room for each family. Education, it's still ongoing, but the quality of education, it's very low. Healthcare, they minimize it until now. Just you go to the UN clinics, you will have a doctor consultation, general doctor, not like specialized. Get like some medications like painkillers and some tests, lab tests. Before it was, if you wanted to do surgery, they cover the surgery cost. If you wanted to buy medicine, they cover the medications or medical supplies. But they keep minimize it until it became very poor. Sanitation, there is like 5,500 people living in the camp. There is like six or seven workers on sanitation. Social services... They are providing the families who are under poverty, according to the UNRWA estimations. They provide them like every three months with 200 shekels, like $50 every three months. They just keep the body. The UNRWA exists. But is it effective? No. Just like to show that, oh, like as Israel do. You know, Israel is, oh, we are giving Palestinians permissions. But to show that they are uh, cooperative, they are trying like to make the Palestinian life better. We are giving them work permissions, health permissions. To show to the world, if there is no world, they will not care about giving the Palestinian permissions, except if they need you as a cheap labor. The most ridiculous thing, all of you are internationals. You came from Netherlands, yeah. So you have maybe, you crossed like 2,000 kilometers from Netherlands to Israel, and you have access to come to Israel to visit all the Israel cities. Me as a Palestinian, who my land was stolen in 1948, I'm living in a refugee camp. If I wanted to go to Jerusalem, I can't. It's seven kilometers far away from either refugee camp to Jerusalem. So if you have a Jewish background and you are living in Netherlands, and you want to be an Israeli citizen, you want to come to live in Israel, in a few months you will take the Israeli citizenship. 
and you never have been here. But just because one of your grandparents or parents have a Jewish background. In the same time, the refugees who fled to U.S., if they wanted to come back or they wanted just to visit because they have information that this family is from Palestine, sometimes they deport them. They don't want them even to visit. If you have an ID, if you have a Palestinian ID and you have like American passport, you can come. You can come and stay here, but not through Bengarian. You have to come to Jordan first. And, you know, it's like many complications. There is many complications. My uncle, he went before the first intifada to Spain to study there. They revoked his ID and he's not anymore Palestinian resident or he, he doesn't have ID to let him come back here. He has a Spanish passport. He can sometimes come and visit for one month visa. So what's going is uprooting. The Zionist ideology or mentality is about three things since they have started their project in Palestine until today. The first dimension is to steal the land. The second dimension, uproot the indigenous people. The third dimension, to replace the indigenous people with the new immigrants. The Zionist leaders they issued many statements last few days since the Ukraine-Russian war. They are like, we have to bring the, the Ukrainian Jewish to Israel. We have to build for them in Nakav or in... This is the mentality of them. They are like two countries. They are fighting and they are thinking about bringing new immigrants. And when they brought 300 of them, they are not Jewish. They are like Christians. They said, we have to focus on the Jewish Ukrainian. Yeah. One of the leaders, she was the education minister. She said that we have to focus on the Jewish Ukrainian. They want to transform Palestine to an ethno-state, Jewish state. They are subjugating the Palestinians, uprooting them, and replacing them with new immigrants. Just because... One of their parents or grandparents, he, he was a Jew. This is what the whole story of Zionism is about. Since it was established in 1898, when their first conference in Basel, until today, this is what all about. And they are always trying to say it's complicated. It's not complicated, it's something very easy. It's a settler colonialism, it's ethnic cleansing, four types of apartheid, and what's going all about, and why this project was supported, because there was a problem in Europe, and they wanted to finish this problem. They wanted to get rid of this problem, and on account of any other people. It's not matter, it's not that big matter. And what's their story to the European Jewish? We will build a Switzerland in the Middle East. This is all about after this introduction by Anas, we walked around the refugee camp and we saw how narrow the streets are. The houses are literally built with no space between them. There are actually only a few streets where you would be able to go with a car. And everywhere you see electricity cables and on the roofs of the houses you see water tanks. 
And with electric pumps, they can pump up water into these water tanks. And that happens on the few days a month that the water is running through the pipes. Especially in the summer, the camps do not get regular water supplies. And this is caused by the fact that Israel controls all the water aquifers under the West Bank. So only Israeli pumping stations are allowed to pump up the water. And then they sell it back to the Palestinians with high prices and in lower quantities. So the Palestinian water company divides the water between the different areas. And some areas get more water than others. So the refugee camps are the first ones to be cut off. So on the day that water is coming, you can see all the people in the camp starting to do laundry, clean their houses with water. And then you hear those electric pumps pumping up the water into the tanks so that they have some water stored for the rest of the month. We also saw the one and only one room that is left that was built in 1956 for a refugee family. All the other rooms have been replaced by now with bigger houses because they have to accommodate growing numbers of Palestinians in the camp. And they cannot grow on ground level. So all the houses are built up on top of each other. So they are quite high-rising houses at the moment. And I think sometimes about the fact that in Palestine, about every 100 years, there has been a big earthquake. And the last one was in 1927. So that is almost 100 years ago. So this is definitely a risk for inhabitants of the refugee camps in Palestine. Anna's also pointed out that the families that ended up living in the refugee camps, they were not originally city people. They were farmers. They were used to live with animals and to grow their own crops. So that's why you see that there are a lot of rooftop gardens and people planting all kinds of plants and herbs in pots around the house and wherever they can find space to plant a tree, they will do that. And then as we were walking, we heard the sound of goats. So when we came closer, we saw that there were a couple of goats in the basement under a family house. We also passed by the new UN school building. This school was built with financial help of Saudi Arabia. And I remember the previous school, it had bullet holes in it. And the UN had decided to replace the windows with walls because of the regular shooting at the building from a nearby Israeli watchtower. And I've always found that very disturbing that the United Nations decided to make classrooms without windows rather than being able to stop the Israeli soldiers from shooting at the school. But that watchtower across the school was set on fire in 2014 with a high-rise pile of car tires was set on fire and it turned completely black. And it has not been in regular use since then. Sometimes they use it when they have a raid on the camp, but generally it's not in use anymore. But there are security cameras everywhere from different points of the separation wall. The cameras are pointing at the camp. So we ended the tour with a visit to a shop near the entrance of the camp and near the youth center. And the owner of this shop has different accessories and jewelry that he made of tear gas canisters that he found and collected in the camp. So he is turning 
something so ugly into something more beautiful. If you want to follow the Ida Youth Center on social media, you can find the links to their Facebook and Instagram and their website in the show notes of this podcast. You can also check out their YouTube channel. There are several videos there that give you a better idea about life in Ida refugee camp. Thank you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the Kofi platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>